0: I'm on. Can you guys hear me out there? All right. I think I'm on. I'm on. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Hey, welcome, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Glad you guys are here. Is the weather a little bit nicer than it was last week? Even the last couple of weeks? It's supposed to be in the 60s this week. Can you believe that? I'm so excited for that. Maybe we can see the grass all over the place again. It's awesome. Welcome out there online, wherever you are, Pastor Paffras and our congregation in Tanzania. Welcome, you guys. Um, it's my hardest thing that I've had in this start of this uh, series is taking all of this incredible stuff that the Lord is showing me and making it down into something that we can talk about in, you know, a reasonable time. Um, there's just so much. I could do like 20 pages of notes easily and then go back and like, okay, wait, what? What do I really need to do? That's been my biggest struggle and I hope that you guys have enjoyed it. Sometimes when I talk to people about, hey, we're studying in Ezra and Nehemiah and they're like, Old Testament stuff, really? Um, But I think you have to have a firm grasp on what's in the Old Testament in order to understand the reason that we need a savior, the reason that we need the new covenant of Jesus. All those things are great, but if you don't know what went into it, what brought us to that moment of desperation and need for a savior, then it's very easy to take Jesus and all that he offers us and just go, well, that's cool. I'll put it on the shelf for when I need it. And my hope and my prayer is that as we go through this series that you will find out that we have always needed it from the very beginning. There's nothing that happens to our culture and our society today that hasn't been happening for thousands of years. It's just repackaged differently. And without a Savior, we'd still be struggling with those things. And we still struggle, but we have a way out. And that way out is Jesus. And so I hope. That as we go through this, I'm going to be really intentional about showing you where Jesus is in all these things. Because a lot of times people read the Old Testament, they study Old Testament scripture, and they're like, well, I'd rather just learn about Jesus. You are learning about Jesus because he's all the way through it. And so I'll point it out from time to time, but if you look for him, he's in all of it. So let's get started because there's so much good stuff here. I'm, I'm super excited about this one. I haven't used the word excited in a while, so there, there it is. All right, I'm excited. All right, so we're calling this series Battle for the Blessing. And what the reason I came up with that, we're studying the books of Ezra and, and Nehemiah, is because you always have to contend for that blessing that God wants to give you, that he has given you, because there's always someone who wants to steal it away from you, right? And... and We put the face of Satan on all of that. Um, But really, it's a spirit that is throughout the world, always wanting to take those things that God gifts us with, those blessings that God wants us to enjoy, and steal them away. And it comes in many different forms. Satan is the chief architect of them all, absolutely. But we have to contend for them. We have to contend for that fruit of God's blessing. And in this series, what we're going to be talking about is is Ezra and Nehemiah, how they had God's favor, they had prophecy prompting, uh, promising what was going to happen, but they still had to fight for it because every step of the way, there was someone who wanted to steal it away from them. And that's just kind of the way it is today. We still struggle with that. So here's where we are. Last week, last week we read the opening verse Uh, of the book of Ezra, and we're still going to be in Ezra today. But our takeaways, just a quick recap of where we were takeaway-wise. Number one, God's promises are unfailing, absolutely unfailing, and it's important to remember that when things don't make sense because to our eyes, a lot of it doesn't make sense, and we just have to wait, and we have to trust, and eventually things will unfold, and we go, I see what he did there. He is so good. And that's why we study some of these older, older scriptures and older things that happen in history because it helps us to see what we're going through today is no different than what they went through back then. And God was faithful, God was good, and he fulfilled all of his promises so we can trust in that today. It helps us today to understand how faithful God has always been. The second thing, there's always a spiritual battle going on in the heavenly realms. Always. There's never like, hey, this has been a good year. There have been no spiritual battles going on. If you're not aware of them, it just means that you haven't seen them. But they're always going on. Always. But God always gives us a way through. All nations, all governments, and all leaders are subject to the sovereign will of God. So, if we look at the political season, or we look at things that are going on uh, all over the world from a political standpoint, um, they're all subject to God. God is sovereign, and so they may not acknowledge Him, they may not understand Him, or know Him, or exalt Him the way that we do. But they are all subject to Him, and they will all eventually bend their knee or or perish. That's how it works. And then the next thing, the last thing, the most important thing, I think, is that Jesus Christ can be found woven throughout all of Scripture, all of history. So you can't just say, I'd rather learn about Jesus, and I'm going to start at Matthew. He's throughout the entirety of the Bible. He's been there from the beginning. So let's get into it. Last week, um, actually the last bit of review here, last week we were talking about Ezra 1, 1 and 2. And I'll read it for those of you who maybe weren't here last week. Uh, Again, Ezra 1, verses 1 and 2. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to rebuild for him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is a Persian king acknowledging the God of heaven and paying funding to rebuild him a house. And as Ezra is writing these words, it's been about 60 years since Cyrus made that declaration, made that decree and then ended up sending Zerubbabel back to Jerusalem to actually start the rebuilding process. So Ezra's writing this looking back at this time at what had happened before. He was the official scribe of the God of heaven. That was his his official title. What he was really, and I said it last week, was kind of the royal secretary for Jewish religious affairs. That's what we'd call him today. It sounds more official. But he would have had easy access to government records. He would have had easy access to knowledge and things that that the average guy maybe didn't have. And so when Ezra recounts this and when he's telling his his story here, recounting it all, it's not always chronological. Ezra kind of jumps back and forth, but his accounts are considered very, very historically accurate. Because what doesn't come from firsthand knowledge, firsthand, I saw this happen and let me tell you what happened, it comes from royal government documents that he's got access to. So a lot of it is very, very historically accurate. All of it is. So we're also going to go on some journeys, some hyperlink journeys here today where we're going to jump back and forth. And so... Um, I just want to warn you of that. There's going to be some of that, but if you stay with me, I, I promise you're going to enjoy the message and what we learn here today. So the very first part we're in, we're in Ezra 1, 3 through 11. So if you've got your Bibles, find that. If you want to pull it up on the, on the app, um, if you're like, man, I wish I would have had time to go back and scan that QR code, you can get up and do it. I won't point you out. I won't laugh at you. I won't call you out. Go scan that. You can pull it up on the Bible app, and it's got all the notes in there. Um, Ezra 1, 3 through 11. Now, this, this section is kind of subtitled a lot of times, Cyrus' Proclamation. Cyrus's Proclamation, because that's kind of what it is, but it's broken into sort of two parts, and we'll talk about it that way. So let's get into the first part. I'll read it for you because it's a little bit longer. Ezra 1, verses 3 and 4. Whoever there is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, the people of that place are to support him with silver and gold, with equipment and cattle, together with a voluntary offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. This is a, a, a pagan king of a largely pagan country or, or a kingdom. Acknowledging the God of Israel and saying, wherever you are, all of my people, if you consider yourself my subject, I want you to help give silver and gold and cattle and fund this expedition for them to go back. That's, that's unheard of for a foreign conquering kingdom to do that. Remember, this event happened in 538 BC. Okay, we're talking way back and and Ezra is documenting this more than 60 years after this actual proclamation but he's looking at official Persian government records and adding them to the Hebrew oral records that they kept and painting us a full picture of exactly what's going on here from both sides so it's, it's incredibly accurate now I want to share something with you that is a my kids, my kids use the term mind grenade. It's a mind grenade. Blew your mind. I love that. So I'm going to share with you this, this little short story that's going to show us how accurate biblical accounts are. Because a lot of people are like, ah, oh, it's just made up. Some people got in a room together and they wrote down, how do we control the people? Anybody ever heard that? How do we control the people? Let's just write this down. Karl Marx called, this, called religion the opiate of the masses. Let's just keep them drugged up and stupid so we can control them. Let me show you how sovereign God is and how accurate and true the Bible is. So again, many people doubt that biblical accounts are accurate and that they have to just be made up. Back in 1879, 1879, there was an archaeological dig in Babylon Okay, Babylon is is in Iraq right now. And here's what they uncovered this. Time after time, all these naysayers are proven so incredibly wrong. Let me show you this. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. I don't know if anybody's ever seen that, seen that, heard of that. It's pretty small. It's only about six inches long and about four inches in diameter. But what's written on that, anybody here read cuneiform? Todd, you read cuneiform, okay? Uh, Kayla, I half expected you to go like, "Oh yeah, let me." It's written in cuneiform. Um, it's the text of Cyrus's decree, on which Ezra bases this account. It's the entire text. Now, this isn't written as uh, exactly as the Bible says. You wouldn't translate it directly at that. It's Cyrus's journal of what he has decreed okay and so he didn't write this he had he sat there and he dictated it to one of his scribes who put it on there and this was uncovered right then in Babylon right where Cyrus would have been and it's dated to exactly that time there's no scholarly advi- uh, opinion that this is not the hand of Cyrus dictating this And it's, it's the entirety of what Ezra is talking about right here now, about the freedom and, the, and what they do and how they supply them and all these sorts of things. It's just, again, like Cyrus's personal journal of his exploits. And it's entirely possible that Ezra would have held this very thing in his hands as he researched and had access to the royal archives. So these royal decrees, they would take these and they, and they were written sometimes like this. This is more permanent record keeping. Sometimes it'd be written on papyrus. But they would take these royal decrees and they would take them to the town square if they, if they had one, or more likely the city gates. And they would read them there. And they would just read them. A herald would blow a trumpet and read this. And they would do it several times a day so that everybody entering and leaving the city would hear these royal decrees. And so Cyrus... He didn't, it's not just something he did on a whim. He didn't just go, hey, yeah, okay, let him go, and hey, give him, some, give him some money to go accomplish building their little wall, whatever they wanted to do. It wasn't like that. This was a royal decree, so much so that he actually had it inscribed on this cylinder, and they read it at the city gates to make sure everybody coming and going heard it. This backs up entirely, 100%, everything that we're reading in the scripture, and they just uncovered it. So if you ever doubt the accuracy and the authenticity of what the Bible talks about, things like this, if you look at it, absolutely prove the Bible accurate. All right, now let's, let's jump back in. Let's look at the text itself. Let's go to Ezra 1.3. Ezra 1.3, whoever there is among you, of all his people, may his God be with him. Go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus is including anyone from the 12 tribes, no matter where they are, whether they're right there in Babylon or they find themselves anywhere in the whole Persian empire. He's saying, you guys are free to go. Not only are you free to go, he's just telling you, go, go and do this. But remember, not all of the freed Jews take Cyrus up on his offer. They're entrenched in their lives. They've got lives. They've got houses. Many of them have never even seen Israel or Jerusalem. They were born and raised right there in Babylon or wherever they are. But God knew that. God knew that this would happen. And this is another thing. Again, follow me on some of these uh, hyperlinks that we go on, God knows that just because you want freedom, you're in captivity, I'm going to make this ruler give you freedom. He knows not everybody's going to take him up on that. And he gives us comfort that way by looking back at what like Isaiah says. So the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before that, said this, Isaiah 10:22. for though your people Israel may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. So, and there's, there, so many of them spread throughout the empire, they're going to be like sand in the sea. But when they're given their freedom and they're able to return, only a small remnant is going to return. God is sovereign. He knows all these things. Let's go to verse 4. And every survivor, at whatever place he may live, the people of that place are to support him with silver and gold, with equipment and cattle, together with a voluntary offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. So he's saying the locals in any Persian district, wherever they are in the entire Persian empire, are to help stock and fund the Jews for the trip back. And specifically, give them an extra offering, not only what they need to survive, but an extra offering for the temple once they get back there and they rebuild it. Now, this next section is usually known as kind of subtitled Holy Vessels Restored. I don't know what your, what your translation, uh, I use NASB again, but wherever you are uh, in your translation, sometimes it's called Holy Vessels Restored. It starts with verse 5. Then the heads of fathers' households of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites rose up. Everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. There's so much important there. Did you catch that? Everyone whose spirit God had stirred, which means not everyone went, only those who God chose and stirred their hearts. Those are the ones who went, and they're the heads of the households from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, the heads of the households, but then also all of the priests and the entire Levite tribe, Remember, there's 12 tribes. Why the entire Levite tribe? Anybody know that? Hmm? I hear mumbling all over. You're probably all right. But let me say it. How The Scripture gives us the answer, really. This is from Deuteronomy 18, 1 and 2. The Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi. So when you hear about Levitical priests, that's what that means. The whole tribe of Levi of Levi, those are the Levitical priests, shall not have a portion or inheritance with Israel. That seems unfair, doesn't it? They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his property. They shall not have an inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So if you look at a map of the 12 tribal regions in Israel, let's put that up there really quick. I don't know how well you can see this, but these are all the different tribal regions. Okay, Asher and Naphtali and Dan, and and it goes on and on. Judah down at the bottom. You don't don't see Levites. You don't see a Levite homeland because they are to be supported and supplied by all of the tribes. So that's... That's why the entire Levite tribe went back. And remember, the Levites were tasked specifically with taking care of the temple. And so, of course, they're going to want to go back. We're rebuilding the temple. We're on board. Let's go. The whole tribe went back. The Holy Spirit had to be at work here, lighting a fire in these people's hearts to go back. Because think about this. They had... They had homes and lives, and very few of them had even seen Israel or Jerusalem. They were firmly entrenched where they were. They had very little connection back then other than just a vague knowledge of this is where our homeland used to be. God had to stir their hearts to get them to go back. The trip didn't have a lot else going for it. Think about this. The journey itself, long, dangerous, expensive, About 900 miles by foot. Some accounts put it as almost double that, depending on the on the season, whether they had to go around or through rivers. But at minimum, 900 mile trip by foot. Minimum. Took them about four months to get there. Who here is going to go? I'm going to go back to my ancestral homeland in in Cleveland or wherever your ancestral homeland is. But I'm going to walk, and it's going to take me four months excuse me, not many would go unless God stirred your heart. They didn't have all the material. They didn't have all the resources that they needed. They returned to a city in ruins. It's not like they went back to a city that was, that was pristine and perfectly kept, and they could just move right in and resume their lives. It's like once we get there, after this dangerous, arduous journey, we're going to have to rebuild everything because there's nothing left. There's no infrastructure. There's no transportation. They'd be surrounded by enemies all the way, and even once they got there. The only place they were safe was in Babylonian captivity, there in Babylon. Then they were protected. Once you get out on the open road, there's bandits. There's everything, and once they get there, they're surrounded by enemy nations. And again, most of them had never even seen their ancestral homeland. Why would you go? I've got everything I need right here. Ezra 1, verse 6. All of those around them encouraged them with articles of silver, with gold, with equipment, with cattle, and with valuables, aside from everything that was given as a voluntary offering. Again, I, I love that. It's a voluntary offering above and beyond. It's kind of where our idea of tithe comes from. Okay. Well, cause we'll, we'll later hear that in scripture where Malachi actually kind of defines what that idea is, but they're saying, give what I'm asking you to give, but then I want you to give above and beyond to help support these people. That's where we get that idea of tithe and offering. So we need to pause a second before we go any further, pause a second, and there's more cool stuff, but we need to we need to pause a second to look at kind of the parallels between this, which can be called the second exodus from Babylon back to Jerusalem, to the first exodus, which is the one that most people know, which is from Egypt, okay, back towards, back towards Canaan or, or their promised land, right? So in Egypt, if we go all the way back then, right before the final plagues, most of us have heard about all the plagues of Egypt and all the things that come their way, but anybody remember specifically what the final plague is, the last one that would come their way? It wasn't locusts. It wasn't blood in the rivers. It wasn't any of that stuff. It was the killing of all firstborn, all firstborn. Firstborn children, firstborn animals, every firstborn, which is where we get the story of them putting blood on the lintel in the doorpost so the angel of death would pass over them as it went about killing all the firstborn. So God, right before that, right before that final plague happened, God tells Moses, I want you to have your people go and just boldly ask all their Egyptian captors, ask them to fund their trip so they can leave. Now at this point, Pharaoh's heart is still hardened. They're still like, these people are our slaves. We're not, we're not letting them go, much less funding their trip until that happens, right? Exodus 12, 35, 36. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses. They asked, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver, articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Therefore, they plundered the Egyptians. It uses the word plundered. And that gold and silver that they took wasn't because what good is gold and silver going to do you as you travel through the desert? It's just something extra to carry along, right? They used that to, to build the tabernacle, to outfit the tabernacle, which was the, the first version, the, the portable, the mobile home version of the temple. Passover, the, the the sacrament of Passover is actually begun even before they are freed. That's another thing that God tells them, tells Moses, institute Passover. You can find that all in, in Exodus if you want to read about it. But even before they're freed, how'd you like somebody comes to you and said, I need you to start celebrating what God has done for you in, in giving you a million dollars or whatever it is, that is that's on your heart. And you're like, well, he hasn't done it yet, but I want you to celebrate it because he's good and celebrate it right now. And so that's why they institute Passover even before they're freed as a remembrance of God's deliverance. So they were promised by God. They knew this already. They're promised by God that eventually they'll be going to the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew that that was ultimately their destiny But here Moses is going, you need to to start thanking him today because this is about to happen. It was clear from the very beginning that the Lord God was orchestrating all of this. There was no way any of this would happen without him. And if you're looking for Jesus in this part of Scripture, he is our Passover lamb. So when they institute Passover there and they sacrifice a lamb to help deliver them from their captors when we talk about Jesus now being our passover lamb sacrificed for us to deliver us Jesus is woven throughout all of this so now okay so here we are we talked about the egyptian exodus now we're going to look at when the jews left babylon some of the parallels there Ezra 1:7 also king cyrus brought out the articles of the house of the lord which nebuchadnezzar had carried away from jerusalem and put in the house of his gods. So when Nebuchadnezzar plundered Jerusalem, he took all that stuff, all the gold, all the treasure, everything that they had, and took it all to Babylon and put it in this big vault. Ezra 1.8, and Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought out by the hand of, of Mithridath, the, the treasurer, and counted them out to Sheshbazar, the leader of Judah, so he said, all this, all this treasure that was taken, that Nebuchadnezzar took, and we put in this vault, I want you to bring it all out, and we're going to give it back to them to take back. What kingdom would do that? What king would do that? I'm, I want you to empty the vaults of everything that we have. Sheshbazar, by the way, if you're struggling with some of these names, Sheshbazar was the leader of the Jews in exile, kind of their, their governor. Now, There is some um, discussion back and forth whether Sheshbazar is the same guy as Zerubbabel because we see Zerubbabel also being called the leader of the Jews and going back to rebuild the temple. There is some discussion back and forth. I'm only saying this for our Bible nerds who are interested in this kind of thing. Um, It's more like like Sheshbazar is the, uh, the official recognized leader, but everybody really follows Zerubbabel. So we have the official recognized, official leader. He's probably got the name tag in the office, Uh, but then Zerubbabel is the one that they really follow. So probably two separate guys. Not important for our discussion, but uh, some people will think about that. Now, we're we're gonna go into this little hyperlink jump here. So follow me, fasten your seat belts, as we talk about what these articles of the house of the Lord are, and we talk about some of the things that happened to them. It's amazing. So Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, invaded and sacked Jerusalem about 587 B.C., give or take. Okay, all these dates are usually a little bit subject to, dis- to debate. But it was after almost a 10-year siege. He didn't just go down there and they threw open the gates and said, come on in and, and sack the city. It was almost a 10-year siege that they had down there to finally just wait out the people that were inside the walls to where they could go in and do that. I have a little depiction here of what that, you can see, I don't know if you can see it how well, there's Jerusalem burning in the background and all of the exiled Jews being herded like sheep out and they're going, they're going to make the trek. That, remember how long I told you that trek was all the way to Babylon. That was a tough journey. So that's what's going on. 2 Kings 24, 13 talks about this. He also brought out from there, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar at this point. He also brought out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. And he smashed all the articles of gold that Solomon, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. All right, sounds like Nebuchadnezzar's He's a bad dude, right? He puts a, puts a 10-year siege on them. He goes in, he enslaves them all. He sacks the city. He's a bad guy, right? Or is he an instrument of God to accomplish what God needed to accomplish? Could be both, right? Think about this. What's the last thing in that Second Kings Scripture? Just as the Lord had said, God knew this was going to happen. God didn't say, I know he's going to conquer you and smash all your things and take all your stuff, but don't worry, I'll stop it. He goes, this is going to happen, and it's going to happen for a reason. He said this to Hezekiah, who was at the time king of Judah, about a decade before Babylon was even a powerhouse. So it's not like he said, hey, this, they're massed at our borders. They're getting ready to invade. and that, Now let me prophesy about what's about to happen. They're going to come in and ruin our city. This was 10 years before Babylon was even a real powerhouse. But he said this, 2 Kings 20, verse 17. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried away to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, declares the Lord. So ask yourself, was Nebuchadnezzar... Uh, a bad guy acting on his own, or was he an instrument that the Lord used to accomplish what he needed to do? Maybe a little both, right? What I take away from that is that God knows how to protect the things that he calls sacred. The things that he needs to happen, the things he needs to accomplish, to accomplish his will, he knows how to make that happen. The things he calls sacred, he knows how to protect those things that he calls sacred, Look how he protected these sacred vessels. Just a short story. It's cool, trust me. Follow me on this. He protected these sacred vessels that he's talking about through the destruction of Jerusalem and the first temple. So when we talk about first temple, second temple period, that was the first temple that he went in and and destroyed, Solomon's temple. 2 Chronicles 36, verse 7. Remember I told you we're going to be jumping around, so stay with me. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 7, Nebuchadnezzar also brought some of the articles of the house of the Lord to Babylon and he put them in his temple in Babylon. Not God's temple, Nebuchadnezzar's temple. So these precious articles would be protected from mistreatment until they could be returned. So here's the story. This is in Daniel. Read all of Daniel 5 if you want the entirety of this cool story. Daniel 5 verses 1 and 2, Belshazzar, The king, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son, okay, so Nebuchadnezzar's out now, Belshazzar, his son, is in, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He's holding this huge party for a thousand diplomats and important people, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines could drink out of them. That's easy to picture, right? He's full of himself. Maybe he's had a little bit of wine. He's like, let me show you how powerful I am. Let's empty out the vault of everything that was plundered from Israel, all the golden goblets and everything that's there, and let's all just have a party drinking out of them and laughing and mocking the God of Israel, right? You You can easily just picture it. Here's my favorite part, the... Some of you are smiling already. I can see it because you know what's coming. If you've studied Daniel, God could not, would not permit the defiling of his sacred to continue. Here's what happens. Daniel 5, verses 5 and 6. Some of you are already there. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face became pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints loosened, and his knees began knocking together. Seems kind of comical, doesn't it? It's like something you'd see in (laughs) Scooby-Doo. Notice it's a human hand. We're not talking about an entire apparition of a person or anything or a whole. It's just a hand, and it comes out and it writes on this wall, and what it writes, Nebuchadnezzar, or uh, Sheshazzar has no idea, Belshazzar, too many Shazars. Um, he has no idea what it says, but he knows it's ominous, because just a hand is writing on this wall. Jewish tradition, by the way, holds that that hand was the hand of the angel Gabriel. Okay, um, None of the king's men can decipher the writing. He calls in, everybody, they're trying to like, I need somebody to tell me what this says. Nobody can do it. So they call in Daniel. Daniel, a prophet of Israel. Call him in. Daniel, what does this say? He offers, actually offers him, I'll give you rich, I'll give you all kinds of stuff if you want that. Daniel says, keep your, keep your treasure. I don't need it. I'll tell you what it says though. And this is what he says. Because you have not humbled your heart and you're drinking wine out of his holy vessels, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. You've been weighed on the scales and have been found deficient. Anybody want to hear that spoken over them? That gives me chills just to think about that. Belshazzar dies that very night Some accounts just say it was in his sleep. However, he died that very night, and Darius takes over the kingdom. God knows how to protect his holy vessels. Read all of Daniel 5 again if you want that story. Let's go back, though. Let's jump back from our hyperlink, back into our text. Ezra Ezra 1, we're in verses 9 through 11 now. Now, this was their number. He's just talking about all of the precious articles that were there. That's going to sound a little bit like a like an accounting, right? This was their number, 30 gold dishes, 1,000 silver dishes, 29 duplicates, 30 gold bowls, 410 silver bowls of a second kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver totaled 5,400. Sheshbazar brought them all up with the exiles who went up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, what I want to point out here is this isn't just a cold inventory, like somebody standing, okay, 410 bulls, checking that out. It's not a cold inventory, like a prison guard returning, you know, to a parolee at the window. We have one wallet, one set of car keys. It's not like that. What this is is a celebration of the full restoration of everything that was taken from the Temple of Solomon. Saying all that that was lost, all that that was stolen and sacked, It's right here, and it's coming back to you. It doesn't sound a lot like a celebration, but that's exactly what that is. All right. Had enough for today, or do you want to keep going? Just kidding. We're going to wrap this up, though. We're going to wrap it up, and we're going to talk about what all this means. What can we take from this story, what can we take with us to apply to our lives today? Some of you are already looking at parallels and things that we can do but let's talk about it. We talked about the parallels between the first exodus and this one. But there are some really important distinctions that we need to talk about. The Israelites in Egypt moved there because there was work and there was food, but they quickly became slaves, and they were ultimately enslaved against their will. And then God came in and delivered them. The Jews in Babylon at this time we're only being held captive by a couple things. They had been freed by decree, you can go. Their indifference and their slavery to their need for the comfort and status that they had already attained. I've got a house here, I've got a job, maybe some sort of respect in my community, and what do I care about a promise from God, about a homeland? See, they knew. Babylon's not their promised land. God had promised a certain land, and that land was 1,000 miles away. They're like, but I'm comfortable here. It was their indifference that was enslaving them in Babylon. They all knew it wasn't what God promised, but most of them, the vast majority of them, refused to go back. It was only those who God stirred their hearts. The Israelites in Egypt remember that we've told this story before, were only satisfied with their miraculous deliverance from slavery for six weeks. All of the plagues, everything that happened to let them escape, to escape Egypt, it only lasted about six weeks. They saw the Red Sea part in front of them so that they could escape and then close up, killing the pursuers behind They saw all that happen, and yet it only took them six weeks to start going, we should have stayed back there because at least then we had stuff to eat. (laughs) Read Exodus 16, 2, and 3. I won't go into that now, but it took very little time before they started complaining and wanted to go back. So the very next thing that happened in, in Exodus is that the law was given. The law was given on Mount Sinai, and the whole idea of the law being given to Moses to come back and give that to the people was to keep them safe, keep them safe from themselves in large part, to keep them holy, to keep them as worthy vessels of God's covenant. That's what it was for. Now here we are all this time later, when the Jews returned to Judah and started rebuilding the temple and started fortifying the walls. So Ezra is mostly about rebuilding the temple, Jeremiah is mostly about rebuilding the walls. That's kind of how it, these two are divided. But once this process all starts, right alongside of it, there starts to be this renewed passion for let's reteach these laws, let's re familiarize ourselves with the laws. Of God, the God who brought us here and provided all of this for us, let's start relearning these things. And they're retaught and the priorities renewed in order to keep people on track. And a lot of that, as we'll see as we go through, included some really hard choices, some really difficult things that they needed to do. If they wanted to be the people that God called them to be, they had to make tough choices to set aside some things that they were used to. And they would need a refresher on the law and their identity because they were just about to enter into what most, most of us call or most scholars call the 400 years of silence. There's basically this 400-year period where God doesn't speak through his prophets anymore, not at that point. And they needed to be refreshed on the law so that they could hold on and wait until this promised Messiah would arrive. They needed a shared respect of the law. They needed a healthy fear of the Lord. And all of that to hold them together until Jesus came. And as we sit here today, 2024, we await the return of the Messiah. We're waiting for that again. And what we can't do, we can't allow ourselves to become voluntary slaves to our culture. We can't allow ourselves to become voluntary slaves to the comfort that we become accustomed to, maybe the status that we've gotten in our our jobs or our communities. We can't allow that to be the thing that anchors us. We can't become slaves to that. Indifference, comfort, status, all those things conspire together to make us forget who we are meant to be. We need to remember who we're meant to be. This is why Peter says this. Now, this is, is 500 years after all of this happens, all of, all of them going back and starting to rebuild the walls. And was 500 years later, in what we call now the New Testament, Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, telling the people, reminding people who they are, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." feel exactly the same way. Remember, God knows how to protect those things that he calls sacred and holy. And he calls you sacred and holy. You don't have to leave, man. We're, we're wrapping up. It's all good. I love, I love the sound of children in church. I, you know my favorite thing is? Is when I hear downstairs, when I hear them worshiping or hear all this stuff. That's, that's what it's meant to be. It's all good. So remember how God knows how to protect those things that he calls sacred and holy. And so with that in mind, I'm gonna let Peter himself, his words, give us our takeaway for today. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may not, or they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. I'm going to read that again because I blew it. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation the visitation he's talking about is the return of Christ to judge the world and when that happens we'll be able to give glory to God when Jesus returns will the way that you have carried yourself today and in this life will it give glory to God or you be found lacking that's a hard question but it's one we have to ask ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I pray just that, that on that day when Jesus returns, that I will not be found lacking, that I will be found to be one who gave all glory, all honor, all praise to the Father in this foreign land in which I find myself. I pray that I am able to separate those things that I engage in of the world for my identity in you. I pray that I never forget who I am, who I was made to be, who I am called to be. I am an ambassador of Christ in this land. I pray that everything I do, my every thought, my every action, backs that up and gives glory to you. Father, we praise you for your son, Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Guys, we're going to take communion together right now. Got John and Ann. They're going to serve communion over here. Uh, Gabe and myself will be over here. Up front here, the way that we do it, if you're new here, um, we just dip the wine or or dip the the bread or the gluten-free crackers that we have in the wine, and we take communion like that. In the back next to the door, we have self-serve. There's juice or the little self-serve containers if you want to do that. You don't have to be a member You don't have to have gone through a class. What you have to do is say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I'm thankful for what he gave for me. And if you can say that, we invite you to take communion together. We just come together in the middle and come down this way. And as you listen to the worship, I have no idea what the worship songs are on the back end, but I do know that it's gonna be exactly what we need to hear because Pastor Tom is so good at seeking the Holy Spirit So listen to the words of the worship. Let them soak over you as you think about where you want to be when Jesus returns. Thank you, guys.